Hey y'all and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Source Code Podcast brought to you by Ninja Jobs. My name is Chris Sanders and thank y'all for joining me today. Uh, a couple things I want to get to before we get to our guests. Uh, one, I just forgot to talk about our first couple of episodes, but something I'm really excited about is we've been fortunate enough to bring on a couple new sponsors, and I really wanted to put that money to work in a unique way. So something we're doing this season is for every guest we have on the Source Code Podcast, we ask them to pick a charity that means something to them. Then we then take some of that sponsor money and make a donation in their name to that charity. So we've been able to do that uh, with our previous two guests. So uh, we had Richard Baitlick on first, and he asked to make the donation to Four Paws Animal Rescue uh, near where he lives. That's where uh, his family got both of their cats. So we did that. Uh, we also uh, worked with Rick Holland on our second episode, and he asked to make a donation to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Uh, pancreatic cancer being a disease which has negatively impacted his family. So we were able to make donations to both of those causes. And with today's guest, Haroon Mir, uh, we're also making a donation. He requested that we make a donation uh, in regards to the recent uh, weather events that have gone on in Puerto Rico. So we made a donation to United for Puerto Rico, uh, helping with that disaster relief. And it was pretty cool. Uh, Haroon actually uh, and his company actually matched that donation on their end. So putting that to work, helping the folks in Puerto Rico, which certainly need that uh, as of now, and we'll probably be needing that for a while as they continue to, uh, to rebuild the infrastructure structure there. Now, before we get to our guests, I want to tell you about one more thing we have going on. Uh, I have a class I'm teaching right now. Of course, I teach a lot of classes, but this one's a free class. I don't do a lot of free ones, but this is a free class. It's online and it's live, and it's centered around a book called The Cuckoo's Egg. And if you're not familiar with The Cuckoo's Egg, it's kind of the story about tracking a spy through uh, through this maze of computer and espionage uh, as told through the lens of a, uh, a person working at Lawrence Berkeley Lab in California in the 80s. Now, it's an older book, but the thing themes uh, told in it really apply uh, to modern times as well. So what I wanted to do was build an intro to information security course framed through the lens of this book, Through the Cuckoo's Egg, which has been a pretty significant book to a lot of people in information security. Uh, I know quite a few people who this book actually got them into the field, so it's that significant. So uh, the class started last week, uh, as of if you're listening to this podcast when it comes out, it started last week. Uh, the second class will be uh, this week. It'll be this Thursday. Uh, we're holding these Thursday nights at 7.30 Eastern. They're live. Uh, live attendance is encouraged. We do some fun games. Uh, there's some interactivity involved. It's pretty neat. Uh, and you get to listen here hear me talk about some intro to InfoSec uh, type stuff. So I think it's pretty fun. We've got some good turnout so far. Uh, if you want to check that out, go to my blog, chrissanders.org. There's a post about it. And if you missed the first one, there's a video there. You can watch it. Video is only available to the next week starts. Uh, once it's all done, we'll package them all up and we're going to make the whole thing freely available to uh, high school and college teachers who maybe want to use it in their classes or build classes around it. So really excited about that. Uh, I think it's going to uh, I think it's going to be a pretty cool and uh, innovative way to teach an intro to information security course. Now, our guest today, as I mentioned, is Haroon Mir, and Haroon caught my attention because he runs a, a company called Thinks, which makes a product called Canary, and Canary is essentially uh, another word for a honeypot. It's all about using honeypots for defense inside your network, and that's a concept I'm certainly familiar with. I wrote about it um, in 2013 before Thinks existed. I wrote about the concept of Canary honeypots um, as an effective way to perform network security monitoring and detection in your network. Uh, it's something that's taken a bit to get uh, to get going, but his company is starting to see some great success. I think some others are probably going to be entering this market pretty soon. And I think there's real opportunity there for that to be an incredibly useful way to perform detection on the network. So I really wanted to talk to Haroon about this, about his company, about how uh, they were able to have such great success and some of these challenges they face there. And Haroon's just an innovative guy. I want to talk about his thoughts on information security in general and uh, and his perspective on the security product market. Now, Haroon uh, was born and raised in South Africa, which is where he lives now. So he obviously has a different perspective on quite a few things. Than, uh, than many of the listeners to this show who are listening from the United States. So we talk about that a little bit too, particularly about education um, in South Africa versus education in the United States. So I think that's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, so that's that's enough of me yapping. Let's get on over to Haroon, and you can hear it from uh, from the man himself. Haroon, how are you today, sir? Uh, excellent, thanks. Good. Now, uh, everybody knows that you're involved with Thinks, and y'all obviously have the Canary product, which I think is creating quite a buzz in InfoSec. Tell me a little bit about kind of your role there and what you're doing. Um, so increasingly, they let me do less and less. Um, for the most <laughs> part, I, I'm the I'm the founder of Thinks. So uh, 
uh, yeah, started it uh, about in 2010. Um, so prior to that, uh, I was the technical director of a pen test company. And uh, in about 2010, uh, wanted to do something else. So got kind of tired of uh, my coolest hacks kind of being scribbling in the margin of other people's uh, masterpieces and, and figured that I wanted to do stuff uh, that, that we could uh, build on. And so we started things, but didn't really know which product we'd build. But also I was terribly, terribly afraid of falling into the consulting trap. And, and I say consulting trap, but it's a, it's a nice problem to have, right? Like most of the guys who end up doing pen testing or, or good security consulting end up making really good money. And, and in a way, it ends up becoming kind of like golden shackles that never allow you to go out and build a product because you just make so much money consulting. Um, and so I was terrified of that. And uh, when we started things, uh, I decided that we'd, we'd absolutely not get uh, stuck in that because I really wanted to see if we could build products that, that would matter. Um, and what we did was we took gigs with customers who had niche problems, hoping that some of their problems would be generalizable. So uh, we, we built an a anti-phishing tool before it was cool um, for that sort of thing. And then along the way, discovered uh, the need for making honeypots useful and practical. And, and that's because um, we essentially had this, this huge customer, um, massive, massive global network. And, and essentially, their problem was they were just onboarding a good security team, but didn't know where to start. And uh, what happened was uh, I was doing kind of uh, not even direct, almost niche consulting for them. And, and one of the trips uh, when I was down there, I saw a whole stack of old desktops. And so I suggested to them, listen, why don't you guys just throw on some uh, honeypot software and this, give it to one of your interns. They'll learn some new tech. Um, even if it's just if you're throwing on Snort, you've got like 50 machines, scatter them around, and it will help aim you um, later on. Like you'll know where your hot zones are. You'll know where tripwires have been tripped. You'll be able to go back to... Uh, the executives with budget requests, right? Because instead of saying, I think we've been owned or I think we've got compromises, you get to point to active compromises. And and despite those guys being hardworking, smart guys, when I visited them six months later, they still hadn't gotten around to doing it. Um, and it was the first time that I really stopped and, and thought about the fact that in all our years of pen testing, we've never bumped into honeypots either, although they're perfectly a good idea. And, and so we started experimenting and started playing with it. Uh, and yeah, it, essentially, uh, I suspect we'll, we'll touch on it later. But essentially what you come up with is that people may think it's a good idea, but the barriers to adoption are multiple. And so at that point, we decided to uh, take a crack at it. And uh, we birthed Canary and then did several iterations with with customers and friends until we got to the product that we think we have today. Um, so, so to, to answer the original question, so, so today I kind of play a role that's uh, somewhat between uh, traditional CEO of a company and the head of product uh, for Canary. So, so it's kind of uh, in many ways still my baby in terms of features we choose or or uh, stupid as it sounds even just the the ux which i'm a little bit crazy obsessive about um and these days most of the engineering is headed up by the much smarter marco slaviero and and the team that he's got under him so essentially they don't let me check code in unless it's uh, uh unless one of them have gone through it multiple times and remind me how stupid i am <laughs> but uh, for the most part uh yeah these days that's me well, I guess you're one of those rare founders who's actually technical, right? I mean, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I've seen your, your conference presentations, and you're a guy who's very forward thinking, and you can you know you can talk the talk and, and walk the walk, and I think that's that's pretty cool. I mean, obviously, you know, there are companies out there that are successful without that, but you know, do you think that's a big part of the success y'all have had so far is the fact that I, that the leadership I, is I, so technical? Yeah, I, I certainly think it works well for us. Like, uh, I know you you'll get lots of. Uh, anti-patterns with it, where, where there's lots of times you find uh, technical guys who can't can't let go of some technical details and end up being the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. but, but I do think in the security space, it's lacking. 
like like I've seen big products, uh, big security product companies, where the CEOs literally don't give a damn. Um, and 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 I don't mean don't give a damn about their customers because I'm sure deep down they do. Um, but but what matters to them is how they uh, apportion their capital or or something uh, crazy uh, finance related. And I think it reflects in the kind of products you see in the marketplace. Like like one of the things you've got to admit that's horribly shocking is you'd you'd find like email crypto products that fail to encrypt email. Or, or firewall products that default to allow all, and and like to horribly abuse the meme. It's like that's the one thing you hire them for, <laughs> and they don't do that. Um, and and yeah, I think that kind of comes from uh, the the CEO or the company ending up not focusing on solving the problem they meant to solve. Uh, in the end, ending up solving their own problems. So, so they optimize for for different things. They optimize for their scalability, their growth, and and not the the customer's problem. You mentioned something that I thought was was pretty interesting. You mentioned that you were kind of super particular about the user experience in your product, and I think that kind of speaks volumes because for especially if you're a product company, right? Like interfacing with your product is literally the way that people interface with your company like it, it's it's how they view you and it's how they view their interaction with you so if if they have a good interaction with your product and it, and it works well then then that's positive if not then it's not and I don't, I don't know i feel like a lot of companies that's lost on them and they think the main interaction yeah. comes from from the salespeople or the website but it's it's the product ux and and i mean that, yeah. that's obviously a big part of what y'all do yeah it's it's interesting though like like i think like many things in security part of the problem is that for a really long time the market has incentivized people differently. So, so I think for, for a really long time, your security product didn't have to have good UX. It, it won or lost on other uh, merits. And, and I think in part there, we're we seeing, uh, other than us, I, I think we're seeing a nice shift in the marketplace. Like I think that stuff will be better for users long term. Where you're starting to get uh, founders and companies and security products now that realize that that stuff matters too. Uh, for, for a while, it was almost a badge of honor. Like, like I remember many, many years ago, and it's, it's almost a side note, um, Marcus Ranum was, was accepting his Tisk Clue Award. And, and this must be like 2000 or, or 99 or something. And, and he had a quote uh, where he said that uh, the amount of clue someone had was inversely proportionate to their PowerPoint skills. <laughs> and uh, the the logic back then was you could be whoop smart technical guy, but then your PowerPoint's gonna suck, or you could be this person who cared about nice slides, and then you probably don't have uh, much clue. And and I think in some ways that's why we end up with PGP, which could probably uh, launch a rocket to the moon, but in practice either gets unused or has almost everyone mail people their private key instead of their public key <laughs> yeah. um, at some point or the other. And, and yeah, I, so I think that stuff's changing for the better. Like, like I think there's a bunch of companies now. Uh, and it's interesting to see the companies that, uh, that have come out of this, no UX matters, we've got to make it uh, simple and work. Um, but in some ways, although uh, people probably wouldn't say it. I think it's a trace back to actually looking around and seeing social media companies and looking at Apple and saying, well, those things are, are winning. Uh, and if we want to win, we've got to do some of that better. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. And it's almost to some degree, I guess, a, a simplification, right? And I think we for so long, we had yeah. so many tools that tried to do everything. And I look at like the arc sites of the world where, you know, they, right. they try to do everything and end up doing, you know, nothing great. Um, and, yep. and, and now it's it's you have very focused tools to do one thing and do it well. And the interfaces are designed around that one thing. And that's certainly beneficial. Yeah, exactly. Look, it's it's uh, interesting. And it's a uh, it's almost a side rant of mine. Uh, so you can stop me at any time. But <laughs> but like, I've got this whole uh the, this whole thought process on why more X hackers aren't building uh, security tools and security products. And and there's a bunch of reasons, but but two that I think are super interesting uh, that come down to our egos. Um, and, and the one is when, when you're a security consultant, you're always the rightest guy in the room. If, if not the smartest guy in the room, um, you're certainly always the rightest. Nobody can argue with you. You just own this company. 
you in there telling them how you own them. And if everyone gets anyone gets cocky, you read them the CEO's email or you show them the shell that you've got on their domain controller. And and you get really used to being in that position of authority. And it's really hard to enter the same boardroom uh, kind of cap in hand saying, hey, would you please buy my product? Because at that point, the guy turns around and tells you why actually the cool new thing is machine learning or why your button should actually be blue because he read in a medium post that blue buttons are better. Mm-hmm. And, and and so that's the, the one component. And, and I think uh, like in a way people have to figure out how to curb their, curb their egos. But, but part of the reason you end up with thousands of dials is because people don't want to have a product that doesn't do something. So, so if you're building product X, you don't want to walk into that room and have someone say, what, you don't ingest uh, XML? And then the guy, uh, it starts to look like weakness, where, uh, which is why you end up with dozens and dozens of security products that use genetic parsers that they've never looked at that are all ownable because uh, in the end they all just ingest someone else's uh, parsing library. So, so I think telling people no is harder to do than, than people think. But I also think if you're not telling people no enough, um, you're going to end up with a kitchen sink type product and it's going to show. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, I mean, I know you've experienced with Thinks. I mean, I, I'm a founder, so I've experienced it. And when you're starting out and, you know, you know, budget's a little tight and someone comes to you and says, hey, if you build this kind of tangential feature, then, you know, I'll buy it. And you're thinking, okay, well, that could be a big payday. So you right. do it. And then a couple of those snowball and then you're left with with a disaster, you know, uh, five years down the road that you're going to pay for forever. Yeah, exactly right, and yeah. and it's a it's a hard thing to to say no to, but but we're pretty lucky that we've kind of uh, managed to get over those humps, and and now uh, like for the most part, our pains are are different growing pains. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Now I wanna I wanna talk about you a little bit, and I wanna kind of take it back to to your origin story, and and you're talking to me now from South Africa, and you're you're from South Africa, is that correct? Yep. Okay. So so I'm third generation South African, so so born here. Uh, don't really call anywhere else home. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this <laughs> origin story sounds uh, much fancier than it should be. So so pretty standard. So, so I went to university in the early 90s, uh, did computer science, um, discovered that I loved playing pool and spent a whole lot of time uh, playing pool instead of focusing on my studies. Um, but one of the uh, interesting side results, uh, uh, side effects of that was I took a job at the university in their kind of student computer lab um, and then ended up spending more and more time working than studying. Um, so I took a full-time job with the university. Uh, at that time, they called it uh user support so basically going out to help lecturers making sure that they were able to computer properly Mm -hmm. Um, and from there moved on to their uh, system engineering department uh, which is where I discovered the joy of uh, Unix systems so I'm one of those uh, people who actually discovered Unixes before Linux because the university was running SunSparks and HPXs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and and I was kind of fortunate because I I walked into a whole bunch of uh, interconnected systems um, without anyone really owning them or sysadmining them, and so I got to cut my teeth uh, basically figuring out how those things worked because people who had set them up had moved on, and and so I I literally just had a, a ball figuring that stuff out and playing with it. It was it was just at the time that Netware was on the rise. Uh, Novell Netware was on the rise. <laughs> yeah, IPX. So, uh, yeah, exactly. IPX, SPX. Woo. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so I did a, a bunch of messing around with that. And then because of the, uh, the degree, I could uh, also code. So I ended up uh, writing what today would, uh, we'd look at as horribly insecure Perl CGI scripts. Mm-hmm. And and the uh, in South Africa the World Wide Web was just kind of taking off in in like '94, so so at that time it was print out anarchist cookbook. Hey, look, Microsoft have a website. Hey, we can put up our own website. And and so initially it was just a few years of uh, I think people talk about it as the lava years where you just kind of consuming 
everything you can about this new uh, uh, about this new infrastructure. And so, when I think about it now, I did that for for about seven years. I worked at the university, and and it was genuinely a great experience because, for example, they had a firewall one running on a uh, running on uh, Sun Spark. And they spent all this money, they bought this machine, and it just sat there in the corner. And nobody would touch it. Mm-hmm. And at some point, uh, they said, hey, if you want to manage that, then go for it. And I was like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll figure that out. So, so I ended up playing on that. And ended up, uh, because everyone was moving to Novell systems and starting to look at Windows NT, I ended up owning all of the university's Unix systems. So their mail servers and their DNS servers uh, and all of that. And and at this point, I was still pretty much a kid. Like, officially, I should still have been uh, studying for my degree. Um, but I ended up uh, being able to sysadmin that stuff uh, and, and, in general, just, just had a ball. Um, well, I want to ask you a couple questions about, yeah, about, sure. about university and you know, most most of the listeners to, to my show are in the U.S. So they, you know, in the U.S., the, the the notion is 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 kids are told from a pretty young age like you should go to college, and that's the thing you know everyone needs to do. And you know, right. not everyone does, but that that's kind of the goal for a lot of people. And we, you know, we can talk for a while whether that's a good or a bad thing. But I, I want to in South Africa is what's what's it like there? I mean, are kids expected yeah. to go to college? Yeah. So so certainly, if you're from a middle income family, the expectation is that kids would go to college. Um, and uh, in South Africa, it's a little bit worse than uh, you guys have it in the States from, from what I've seen in that the States actively or uh, certainly increasingly seems to actively encourage entrepreneurship, where mm-hmm. South Africa doesn't somehow. So so we churn out lots and lots of ComSci graduates who don't start companies and don't build uh, products. Instead, they end up working uh, at companies selling routers, uh, you guys will say routers, <laughs> or, or, or working for working for technical companies that kind of resell uh, stuff from other parts of the world, and and I think that's a, a huge thing. It's something that that I'd like to get uh, turned around in South Africa, and, and one of the ways I think is by uh, actually showing people that there's another way. Yeah. But but uh, for the most part, there's there good universities that are turning out reasonable students, so so not great students, and increasingly, and, and I suspect we'll get to this topic a little later, but, but one of my huge concerns for us in South Africa, but, but even for us as a, a hacker security collective, uh, is the increasing consumption that we do instead of production. And uh, I feel it a lot uh, increasingly in the in the hacker slash security community, uh, I certainly think it's a huge problem for us in South Africa, and uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things that that I try really hard to to rail against. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that, and a, a good friend of mine who was actually a, a podcast guest on the last uh, season, uh, Mike Poor, he, he told me once. Um, actually, I talked to him when I was getting ready to start my company, and was uh, you know asking him for his advice, and and he said, you know, the cool thing is, is you, you know, you're creating stuff, and the world generally belongs to those who are creators, and that's something that I know yeah. really stuck with me, and I think what you said kind of echoes that, and, and that's I don't know, maybe that's at the heart of the entrepreneurial spirit is those who are willing not to just consume, but also to create and have this standardized culture of creating constantly yeah i i think it's uh, so i'm absolutely with that and and mike post clearly a, a very smart guy i think in the security community though uh we're in particular danger because there's a lot of consumption that looks like it's not consumption so so for example people could very easily attend the conference circuit constantly attending conferences and maybe they pick a lock and maybe they sold a badge and and they don't realize and and all those things are great and and people should do them but but they can very easily become empty brain calories also where you kind of go to the next con play with a new badge uh, walk through the hacker village make a microsoft joke and and the year passes and you haven't put stuff out and you haven't stretched yourself um, and yeah, um, it, it's something that I'm always uh, kind of worried about. 
Oh yeah, well I, I know you're like me. I, I go to a lot of them. and I, I think about that too, and it's it's almost that. I mean, we talk about the creation of things. It almost has to be sustained. I mean, I mean, how much can you actually create in a day at a security conference, and and how much can right. you consume, and how do you transition from consuming to creating, and and that's. That's a complex subject, and, and I don't know. I think the the <laughs> ethnocentricities of it, and like you know what it means in one country versus another, and, and how you yeah. still because I think there's things to be learned on both ends, and I, I don't know. I think there's a lot to that for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's a complex topic, but but I'm uh, yeah, I'm just glad that there's other people in the fight. Go team. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. Now let's get back to Haroon. You know, growing up as a kid, I mean, were you? You mentioned you really got in depth involved with computers when you were in, in college. So I guess I have a two part question is first, you know, what kind of student were you before college just in, in, in typical <laughs> yeah. school and were you interested in technology and computers at that age too? Yeah. So, um, uh, I had an uncle who had an X86 computer when I was in, uh, trying to translate it to, to you guys. I think that would be grade eight or, or so for us standard six. So, so when I was around 13, um, essentially, there was a computer that I could use relatively nearby. And uh, around that time, we started doing Turbo Pascal in school. And and so I spent ages and ages uh, just writing stupid uh, Turbo Pascal programs. Um, we didn't get the internet till really late. So so 94 was, was when I met the internet in, in South Africa. Um, so, so for us, we'd see movies about people uh, phone freaking or see watch movies with people using modems, and and for us, it was uh, kind of complete uh, magic and witchcraft. But but uh, I went through a period of absolutely loving uh, Turbo Pascal, writing a whole bunch of stuff, and and it's something. It's funny because I thought about it fairly recently. Um, there was kind of no one around to uh, to teach me what to do at that point, and I kind of ended up digging into really stupid parts of the system, which which sound cooler than they are now. Uh, like, so I'll tell you, they, I'm not sure if you remember, but way back there used to be uh, PC Tools, which was this uh, standalone program that you could buy, and and PC Tools had a menu called Hex Edit, um, where you could hex edit the binary that you were working on. And uh, I remember that the computer I was working on had this strange uh, DOS-based menu system that didn't seem to have any administrative page. So to add an application to the menu system, um, essentially, uh, I did it over a long, long time just by hex editing the menu system. And and essentially, at that point, just going, well, item number one launches uh, command.com, and here's what this looks like in the hex. So if I put in my Spider-Man game, um, this is what it needs for it to launch. And and at that point, I did a whole bunch of really stupid hex editing. Like, can I change the copyright information in the game to be my name? Because I was 13 and stupid. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and so <laughs> I did a, a lot of that fiddling. But but something, and, and this, uh, <laughs> it's it's weird talking about myself this way, but... but uh, one of the things that that's always been true is that I uh, obsess over things pretty easily, but but it's not just computers. So so I went through that stage and I really obsessed over computers, um, and really obsessed over Pascal programming, um, to the point where like in in uh, when I was fourteen we had a computer science Olympiad, 
and most people were handing in uh, like quizzes or, or stuff like that. And I recall having built a telephone directory that at that time used a rudimentary file access and a mini storage DB. But but for the most part, it's not because I'm a great programmer, but more because I obsess much more than other people over stuff. And, and so when I played uh, soccer or, or football, like I'd obsess over that for a long time and and go pretty deep into it and uh yeah that was that was pretty much the the story of my high school is just finding different things to obsess over um in terms of was i a good student i was one of those students who teachers constantly said should have been a great student uh but didn't didn't show up enough uh-huh. um and like I was reasonably happy with that. Uh, uh, so so I made uh, unusual choices in school. So so for example, I was uh, convinced that look, we're never gonna get a chance to play this much football with our friends. And so uh, like in high school, there were years when all I did was play soccer with different classes instead of actually taking classes. And teachers kind of seemed okay with it. They figured I'd pass. And uh, let me do whatever it was uh, I was doing. Sometimes I think I would have done better in a school that actually uh, was more disciplined and focused me a little more. Like like at some point someone should have said, hey, uh, this kid actually is good at computers. Let's make sure he attends the computer science Olympiad. But in retrospect, it kind of worked out okay. Like I kind of got to to extract different uh, benefits for different times of my life. And I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. Yeah, that make, that make, that's cool. Uh, now, you mentioned in a couple threads so far, you mentioned, you know, coding and, and that you started programming pretty early. And I think there's, there's a debate that goes on in security all the time now is whether security people need to be able to code. And I think I'm not going to ask you that question because I think that's a lazy question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a more specific one. And I, I think the question is, for a normal security person, to what degree should they be comfortable with code? I think that's that's a better question. As in, should they should they have mastery over one language, mastery over multiple, just casual ability to use multiple? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. Look, I'll I'll even answer the first one. Uh, right now, I think everyone should be able to code, and and I don't mean it in a generic uh, code for maker. Let's let's get people. Uh, I mean, like like my kid sister is a pharmacist, and I think she should learn to code. Like, like, I think right now, uh, coding is a superpower in whatever job you're doing. Uh, I think if you, the person who's uh, sequencing genes but can actually write together some, throw together some R or some uh, Python, it'll do you good. Yeah. And, and I think in security in particular, like, I've gone from you probably should learn it to absolutely you should learn it. Um, in terms of the depth of the learning, it's interesting because I think people sometimes think it means that you need to be a master in C or you need to be a, a master in assembly. And while I think fundamentals are good, I, I think it depends. Like right now, the field is increasingly specialized and, and I don't think everyone needs to be an ASM master. But but I think everyone should be able to whoop together something that works, even if it's not elegant. Um, and so at that point, I think you're talking about Python, Ruby, um, today Go, or, or even Perl. Um, so so just one step above Bash, um, where where you could happily run something and probably put up a web server that's running it as a CGI. Um, I think everyone should do that. And and then depending on your field of specialization. Uh, certainly, I think you should be able to dive down into uh, languages that are going to bump into your job. So if, if you're planning to do incident response, you should be able to look at the structure of a binary, understand what's going on with the sections, uh, understand uh, what's going on with the entry point. And for the most part, I think one of the things that's that's kept me interested in security for so long is just that there's so many rabbit holes that you can go really deep on. So... So yeah, I, I think a basic uh, competence is necessary, and I think a mastery of it is kind of why you're in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Now, 
we talked about you know your time in, in college, and at some point, you know, you you looked at, at joining the workforce. And I, this is a question I ask everyone: is is you know what was the first job you ever had, and not necessarily the first technical job, but what was the first thing you ever did and, and were paid to do? Oh wow! Um, yes, I've been working for for a ridiculously long time, uh, so I don't I don't think this job exists uh, in the states. Um, it's uh, so so in in South Africa you get these uh, you get these sh- uh, like clothing shops in uh, relatively poor areas who specialize in selling to what they call hawkers. So so essentially you're selling to an informal trade uh, who then take all the stuff and sell it in townships. So so essentially you showing them a T-shirt, they buying. 500 t-shirts carrying it out of the store and going and selling it in even poorer areas so so my first job after that mouthful was uh when i was probably uh if i remember right i think i was 10 um i worked at a shop like that uh literally standing outside the store screaming uh to the people in zulu which is one of south africa's uh languages essentially screaming come inside come inside uh like two bucks a shirt um so yeah i haven't thought about that for for a really long time but i guess that would have been the, the wow. first thing that i was actually paid to do yeah well t- i mean talk about humble beginnings that's uh <laughs> that's, that's yeah, a heck no. of a story that's cool well i guess now now i guess moving forward a couple steps uh <laughs> yeah, for, you go you go you go from yelling people to buy shirts and you're graduating with uh with a degree in computer science and and what do you do with that yeah, so so I ended up working at the university for for a while longer than my degree, and so uh, what I did there was I was uh, learning sysadmin, learning just networks and in discovering the internet. And while I was doing it, uh, my degree was essentially free, so I ended up taking courses in like really ridiculous subjects. So so I took English and I took legals and I took marketing and I took uh, I took introduction to psychology because the textbook was understanding human sexuality. Um, <laughs> course, course wasn't as cool as I thought it would be. Um, but, but no, so 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 I did a lot of uh, stuff like that. And then what happened uh, around uh, like around two thousand, um, I bumped into uh, a guy, one of the guys who's just started SensePost. So uh, actually, if uh, if you've used uh, Multigo uh, from Paterva, mm-hmm. so uh, so Rulof Temming was one of the the guys who started uh, SensePost, and so Rulof and I met on IRC, and around uh, 2000 there there was a series or there were series of really horrific uh, IIS bugs. So I'm not sure if if you remember the IIS Unicode bug or the IIS Double Decode bug, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, so, so essentially, what happened at that point was uh, Ruloff had come onto an IRC channel and was working on a scanner slash, uh, in air quotes, exploit tool for the Unicode bug. Um, and while working at the university, I had written one uh, just for fun because that's the stuff I was playing around with also. So, so Ruloff came on onto this IRC channel, mentioned his tool, I sent him mine. Um, and we started collaborating. A, a few weeks later, there was a slight variation on the bug. Uh, it was called the double decode bug. Essentially, Microsoft tried to patch the Unicode bug, but but didn't do it comprehensively enough. So Rolf came back onto the channel uh, looking for me, and we worked together to put that new tool out. And at that point, he said, look, uh, we've just started a company like a month ago or, or two months ago. Would you consider uh, coming here and chatting to us? And so I moved up. Uh, I went to to meet the the what was then the team, um, and they were literally working out of Ruloff's bedroom, uh, about to start a penetration testing company. So at the time they had very few customers, and yeah, it looked like fun. Uh, security increasingly looked like the stuff I wanted to do. So I was playing on Firewall One and was relatively active on mailing lists for here's a new bug, here's how you do this right. Uh, I think uh, the Melissa I Love You Worm had had just showed up and, and I remember writing 
M4 macros for send mail to to help the university out. So so I was increasingly doing that sort of stuff, and the chance to join a company that said they were going to do penetration testing, kind of fit the dream. So so from the university I joined SensePost, um, and started my life as a pen tester. Hmm. Now you were doing. I mean, essentially, cons- pen testing is essentially consulting, and we talked about that a little bit. I mean, what yep. what did you? I mean, obviously, with consulting, you get exposure to a lot of things, uh, and yep. that's pretty cool. And it sounds like that really fits your personality with your desire to kind of just move, you know, focus on one thing a lot and move to another thing. And I mean, beyond that, I mean, what did you what did you like and what did you dislike about kind of that consulting life? Yeah. So so pen testing was was interesting for us, and and you're right, it's pen testing slash consulting. Um, it, it it was interesting for us because it was really early. So we're talking about two thousand and one, two thousand and two, uh, and we got really lucky because in like two thousand and two, we did a talk at uh, Black Hat. Back then, Black Hat had a a Windows event, like Black Hat Windows. And and we did a talk because way back then uh, we built a Trojan that used an instance of Internet Explorer. So instead of using sockets to go out, it would co-opt uh, an invisible version of your browser. So if you had proxy settings, it would take your proxy settings and tunnel data off your network. And and I say we got lucky because uh, essentially that got us to see another part of the world really early in our company history. So it's it's like year one, we're mainly talking to South Africans and we show up at a black hat and do a talk. And when we at Black Hat, we find like the the guys who had just written Hacking Exposed. And they say, Hey, we covered your Unicode tool in Hacking Exposed. Like, look, we've actually got it in there. And uh, so we made connections with like other pen testers and consultants uh, way early. And we kind of got attention from potential customers. So so we ended up doing work mainly for international customers. Um, we ended up doing work for like branches of the UN, for, for most of the big software houses. And uh, in truth, for, for about eight years, for me, it was an absolute dream. Like, like we built the company, we got new young guys in. So we had the benefit of learning how to grow a learning culture which uh, is super important to me. And and we got a chance to just do awesome breakage all around the world. And and for about eight years, that was pretty much what I focused hard on. Like like we just broke new stuff all the time. And and so we kind of made it a point to speak at every black hat, certainly every black hat Vegas every year after that. So so probably from two thousand and one to Till the time I left in 2010, we spoke at Black Hat every year, which which meant doing at least one piece of research that that was good enough to to show up on a on a big stage like that. Um, so so initially, I absolutely loved it. I had zero complaints. Um, if if anyone's doing that sort of pen testing, you'll know one of the downsides is that it ends up consuming your life. Um, but at that point, I pretty much considered it uh, not not quite a badge of honor, but but almost the school fees that you've got to pay. Uh, and and it was something that we'd teach the young guys who join us. It's like if you want to be playing at this level, then what you need to do is be obsessing over everything. So so a report doesn't go in unless we've owned the customer. Um, and if you need to, we'll we'll get in help. From, from other guys on the team. And that stuff kind of birthed a whole bunch of tools and techniques because there were times when you'd, there'd just be no way and so we'd have to make a way. And, and that ends up becoming a, a cool talk or, or a cool blog post. And uh, no, for, for the better part of a decade, I thought that was pretty perfect. Like I was living the dream. I wanna pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for 
quite a bit faster. And it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is SOURCECODE17, SOURCECODE17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. Now let's get back to Haroon. It, it sounds like I, you mentioned that in South Africa, the thing that you don't see as much of is the entrepreneurial spirit being uh, kind of put into people at a young age. But it sounds like at least by this point, you kind of had some of that because you were helping grow a company. Is this is this where you got <laughs> that or did you get that for earlier on? It, yeah, it's it's interesting. So so I've done a lot of jobs growing up and like like had the South African version of a lemonade stand almost. But and, and even though Thinkst is now my my second company, like uh, so I ended up being a director of SensePost. I, I wouldn't say that I'm the prototypical entrepreneur. Like like I don't think I'd ever self-identify as an entrepreneur. And with SensePost, it's kind of funny because Rolof and I used to often talk that in our early days, what we wanted was just the opportunity to do cool stuff. So So if some big company had come and told us, we'd pay you just sit here and do cool stuff, we would have taken it. But nobody did. And so instead, what we had to do was build a company that allowed us to do cool stuff. That's but, awesome. But that was kind of the the main driving factor. And, and then as you get in new guys into the company, well, it's better for you if you've got more guys who are doing cool stuff. And, and that's kind of how and why we built that originally. And in truth, when I built things, uh, I, I was a little more deliberate about lots of the stuff, but essentially I did the same thing. Like, like the idea was, well, let's build the sort of company that I really wish I could just go work at, but I don't see that company right now, so instead we're going to have to build it. Okay. Now, I got I to gotta pause for just a second. I got to have more de- details. What's the South <laughs> African equivalent to a lemonade stand? <laughs> so, so I'm not sure if you guys have flea markets over there. Oh, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so, so for a long while, I made really good money by running two flea market stalls. Um, and I say good money, like it ended up being almost like a, a little shop, like, uh, like it ended up doing the, the equivalent of, of having a little store. Um, and so in my, uh, what would you call it? Uh, the, in, in my final year of high school, Mm-hmm. I was uh, running uh, two flea market stalls that were allowing me to to have money and and act like I was one of the uh, rich kids. Also, ah, uh, there you go. Well, now nah, we yeah we have uh, we have flea markets all over here, so I think people will certainly relate to that one. Um, right. Good deal. Now you're getting ready to start things, and y'all y'all do a lot of things. Was was Canary part of the plan when you started, or did that come later? No, so so I made a list of things when I was starting things. Uh, so so uh, almost one step back. So so the the SensePost stuff was going well. Um, we were growing. We had a good reputation. People liked us. But increasingly, I was starting to feel slightly disillusioned about how much of a difference we were making in the world. Like like I started to think, uh, look, we pen testing companies and we're doing it repeatedly, and this stuff's not moving the needle forward. Oh, we were having a lot of fun. Um, like, like I say, pen testing is always fun. And and if you get to do it at the right level, which like at the end of, towards the end of my career, like I, it's gonna sound horrible, but but like you don't have to take uh, run of the mill gigs. So so every gig that you take is an awesome one where there's a completely new problem or new space and new technology, and and so it it keeps you covered in dopamine hits. It's, it's really awesome. You end up owning something new and learning something new. But, but like I say, the, the one thought that I had is that you're constantly scribbling in the margins of other people's uh, work. So, so other people write this, this entire book 
and essentially you come come along later and scribble in the margins and and it's important work like i think someone needs to do it but uh, at some point you figure out that hey it would be nice to write a book of your own um in, instead of just always telling other people what to do um and so canary wasn't the original uh, idea the original idea uh, i had several ideas one of them uh today would look like the rasp waf market so so i was convinced i could build an inline product for the big banks that would detect malicious activity uh for internet banking and and banking sessions and so uh, i had a list of about four or five products that i thought we'd take a crack at but one of the things was that i wasn't planning on taking venture capital funding and so the plan was that we'd find a customer who had problem x see if that customer would pay us to build it for them uh with the hope to then generalizing the solution uh to a bunch of other places and yeah so we we kind of uh tried uh, a small number of things until we bumped into uh, canary Gotcha. Now, I'm 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 a huge fan of Canary, and of people who know me, I've, I've blogged about uh, I blogged about honeypots and 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 written about it. I actually wrote about I actually called them, ironically enough, Canary honeypots in my my 2013 book, Applied Network Security Monitoring, and uh, wrote about this concept that okay, if you have a honeypot in your internal network and someone connects to it, it's an alertable event every single time, even if it's just an accident by right. someone goofing around. So, and, and I always said that this concept, if, you know, basically I would give interviews about the book later or give conference talks. And I said, the first company that comes out there and takes this concept or one similar makes it effective, very simple to deploy, maybe has even little hardware devices and makes it affordable yep. because it doesn't have to be expensive. Makes it affordable right. is, is really going to be probably making the most significant impact in defensive security that we've seen in, in maybe a decade. And for, for what I've seen, I mean, that's, that's you guys. Now, <laughs> well, now, that's cool. Now, when you when you started with that, I mean, did you did you feel as strongly? Did you feel like this could be a huge game changing type deal? Uh, it's interesting. So, so I I totally agree. Like, like I think it's a good place to to uh, make an impact. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think in hindsight, it always looks clearer than uh, than it did at the time. I'll, I'll tell you when we built our first few devices. So, so what happened was we, we built uh, initially a run of like 12 devices, which we sent out to a bunch of uh, people who are smarter than us saying, hey, uh, can you check this out? And, and what's interesting is I spoke to a whole bunch of uh, people in the industry who I knew and respected saying, here's what we're doing. Here's why we think it's a good idea. And, and the one thing that's clear is that almost everyone didn't think it was a good idea. Um, and that's uh, a really smart old school guys said, listen, the honeypot thing has been tried. Like we thought it was a good idea. It didn't work out. Um, and, and they were one crew. And, and the other crew, of which was surprisingly common, was people saying, look, we can do this. Like, why would we buy this? We, we can do this now. Like we can take a Windows box and instrument it. And initially my answer was, yes, but you don't. Yeah, that, that's like, the thing. If you could do it, then why haven't you? Yeah, Exactly. And, and, and that's like a surprising insight because, uh, yeah, it's like even today you, you, we bump into potential customers and, and you talk to their technical team and their technical team says, oh, I could do this. And the answer is like, sure, how many do you have? <laughs> and uh, if, if you took Canary now, like five minutes from now, your answer would be 20. Um, and and so, so so initially, I I had an inkling that that we'd win with that just because I thought people were uh, making a mistake with that part. But but certainly we had to do a few iterations uh, to make it easier. Like uh, like I'll tell you something really stupid. I'm not sure. Like I haven't uh, shown you Canary at any point, but. But one of the things Canary does that's relatively unusual, and, and we have a bunch of uh, tricks like this in the product. But when you do the initial setup, we, we do a bunch of tricks to make sure that even if you're on a crazy complicated network, um, you can set it up quickly and painlessly. And uh, we put in a disproportionate amount of effort into that component, like like probably more than people would know. And, and the reason was not just because uh, 
we obsessive idiots. But because if if people early on, like I'm talking about in the first few minutes of the experience with the honeypot, found that it was going to be drudgery or, or as much work as them setting up their own XP box, they'd kind of fall back to that, well, this is just work. So, so very early on, we figured out that we had to get it down so that you could drop your canary and be up and running in five minutes. Because if you don't beat uh, that small window, people just recategorize you as effort. And, and if you're asking people where effort should be expended in defending a network, they're going to come back and tell you dozens of other places. But if you can point out to them that if they take half an hour now, they'll be done and never have to admin it again, then you want to something. Um, and so, so yeah, we, we spent a lot of engineering time uh, trying to make sure that, that that works out. One of the things I've, I've found, and certainly you guys have seen this, is people are often turned off by the word honeypot. Um, it carries a ton of baggage. It's been around for so long. And, and I, I know the, the anecdote I often tell is I've worked for all three branches of the U.S. military at various points. And when I wanted to deploy honeypots in the Army, they told me, hell no. When I wanted to do it for the Navy, they said, yes, but you can't call them honeypots. And then when I did it, wanted to do it for the Air Force, they were like, oh, we'll go ahead. So the, the whole spectrum, <laughs> the whole spectrum of, of like the acceptance of the term honeypot before I even told them what I really wanted to do. So, yep. and I, I'm even, I've got your webpage pulled up right now on the FAQ, the first, the first first question addresses kind of a little bit of that about honeypots, but, but how do you, other than just general education, how do you deal with that, that kind of hatred or disdain for the word honeypot? Yeah, it's interesting. I think so. So it's funny, like in, in 2015, Marco and I did a, a black hat talk titled bring back the honeypots. And, and I think I spent about half my time in that talk explaining why honeypots have a bad rep. And, and they've got a bad rep in, in some cases for, for good reason. Like, the look, when I started security early on, the Project HoneyNet guys were doing excellent work. Like, they were educating people, and, and certainly I consumed every one of Lance Spitzner's documents uh, the moment he put it out. But, but the Project HoneyNet stuff uh, aimed itself pretty squarely at know your enemy, like learn the tips and tricks of the hacker community. And and so they kind of aimed honeypots as an uh, anthropological tool. Like you can use this to study this unknown species of of person known as a hacker. And and so companies that have burning fires on their hands don't now want to spend the time going and doing studies on how does a hacker look when he enters my network. And and there's lots of... of so so in, in that sense, I think that ended up being a little mischaracterized. Like it ended up being, if you want to really study these attackers and know how they think, then you drop a honeypot. And I think the other thing, uh, the other reason that honeypots get badly mischaracterized is, uh, uh, again, it's something we touched on on the talk, but but security people do a very strange thing in terms of imagining the ideal attacker. And, and so if you pull up, it's one of the old, old Honeypot uh, project, Honey, HoneyNet projects. There's a project called Sebek. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right uh, or if you remember it. But, but essentially, Sebek was a rootkit that you could run on uh, BSD or Linux. And essentially what it would mean is that you'd rootkit your own machine. So from that point on, any attacker who's on that machine, all these keystrokes would move covertly from that machine to you. So you could uh, observe everything on that machine. And and shortly after Cebec was released, uh, someone released at, at, I think, CanSecWest or PacSec, ways to detect Cebec using uh, kernel timing. So essentially, you'd notice that your kernel was busy with other stuff instead of being uh, just busy with your tasks. And Sebek kind of died as a project after that because people saw it as, well, Sebek was now defeated. And and what's stupid about that is even if Sebek was defeated in the lab, I've almost, well, I've certainly never seen an attacker who'd compromise a box and then spend time timing syscalls to find out if he was on a Sebect box or not. So even though it was defeated theoretically, it would still have been useful 
in practice in the wild. But people kind of moved on from it from a, oh, okay, that's been defeated. Um, and, and so I think honeypots kind of have that where people go, well, theoretically, I could detect it in these N ways or I could do these things to bypass, uh, bypass it for some version of bypass. And in truth, when the attackers hit Sony, they weren't doing anything like this sort of uh, testing. When, when Snowden uh, raided the NSA, he wasn't doing this sort of testing on every host that he went to. Like, he saw an open share and he raided it. So, so I think there's sometimes an obsession with perfection that uh, avoids people from actually achieving the good. Um, in, in terms of how we sell it, uh, we've been fairly lucky in that, uh, like, almost uh, perfectly dreamlike, we, uh, we had customers early on who got it. And, and I think at that stage, at our first few customer stage, we would have struggled to get this message across. But really early on, we had really smart customers who bought us, tried it, allowed us to get stuff right with them because we kind of iterated uh, with them a little bit. And as we got more mature, uh, I'd say less mature customers found it more appealing. And uh, so, so in that sense, we kind of got lucky, and uh, it's it's been working out pretty well for us. Yeah. Now, I, I just recently, as recently as I guess last year, I gave a talk about just general honeypot strategy and how to think about them, how to deploy them, and um, I, of course, it never fails. I had a question from the audience and, and said, you know, uh, where you know I'm because the guy basically said, you know, I'm at a point where you know we're barely got signature based detection figured out. How can you advocate that I should even be thinking right. about honeypots when they're such a complicated, difficult endeavor to, to do? And and obviously your product simplifies that. But even beyond that, there are open source tools and there are ways to set up honeypots that are very simple. I mean, if you set up an SSH server that doesn't go anywhere and alerts when someone logs into it, that's essentially right. a, a honeypot. Um so how I mean, how do you what would you say to those people who say, I'm not ready for this? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I think there's an interesting and, and there's a lot of smart people who I think haven't given this uh, a lot of thought. Like like at some point I spoke, uh, I had uh, conversations with some of them uh, pretty publicly uh, with this sort of thinking. And uh, look, I'm obviously biased uh, because I think you should get them sooner rather than later. Um, I do feel making it simple enough takes some of the wind out of that because uh, at some point I get to say to them, in the time it took us to have this conversation, you would have had 10 canaries up and running. Like, let's not continue the conversation. Let's drop 10 canaries. And it's going to cost you less than your organization's coffee bill. And you're going to be done. Uh, so, so, so one of them is just a, a proof like that. Um, but the other, in, in terms of uh, winning that argument academically, I think one of the problems that, that people often complain about is not knowing where to focus. And I think a honeypot triggering in some part recess of your network is useful for that. I think one of the complaints people have is the inability to convince management to either commit enough resources or that it's enough of a problem. I think it's very different saying to them, well, here's how Sony were attacked and here's how bad it was for Sony, as opposed to at 3 a.m. this morning, somebody tried to log into this fake router of ours and nobody should have done it. Like, so, so I think the the use of uh, honeypots or canaries end up helping immature customers a fair bit grow their maturity. But but I certainly think that uh, the approach uh, the, there's two approaches to to dropping honeypots, right? And and we focus really heavily on quick, easy breach detection. And and you can deploy honey uh, canaries in in lots of complex ways, but but essentially, we make it so that you could do the simple thing in, in four minutes. And I would agree with those people in the other case where people intend for honeypots or deception to be this whole spy versus spy game where you're now capturing attackers and playing with attackers and watching what they do. Because most security teams are limited. And, and if you've got limited resources, there's a bunch of things you'd rather have them doing than playing spy versus spy with random attackers on your network. 
Absolutely. I think that's great advice. Now we're, we're just about out of time here. So I want to get to the, the last question. And this is the question I ask every one of my guests, you know, people are listening and they're interested in you and your company and what you've done, and they want to follow a similar path. What's the best advice you can give to people who want to, again, follow a similar path to yours or, or be an entrepreneur in InfoSec or just be an, an InfoSec practitioner in general? <laughs> that's super interesting. Um, so, so InfoSec in general, uh, my, advice would be just to create. And and I think for this, uh, people underestimate uh, how easily they can start. So, so if you're an absolute beginner, put up an article on how to do SSH tunnels. Put up an article on how you access the internet via SSH proxies. Like, uh, like I think the, the act of creating is useful and leads to better things. Um, in terms of... Uh, being an infosec entrepreneur and building a company, uh, I think if people do it for the right reasons, like it's certainly something I'd advise. Um, I think, like most things, it it has some pain, so so they've got to make sure it's it's what they sign up for. But but again, uh, I think the the cost of trying these days is relatively low. So so I've given a few talks where I've basically ended by saying, hey throw your hat in the ring. Like, like we need more smart people building smart stuff because we've got years and years of garbage products made by people who really don't care about the industry at all. So, so if you're passionate and care about the industry and see products that you'd like to exist in the world, like, like you almost owe it to the industry. Like throw your hat in the ring and, and let's see if you can, if you can do something with it. Great advice. Well, Haroon, thanks so much for spending some time with me. I think people are really going to enjoy this. And uh, uh, if you're interested in learning more about Haroon, you can obviously check out his, uh, uh, his website uh, and check out the Canary product as well. Haroon, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's been great. Now, after listening to all that, can y'all believe that Haroon is actually not a sponsor of this podcast? I know I kind of went a little bit of a fanboy there, but I'm just a big fan of the product and the way they do business and how they charge an affordable price for a good product. I think that means a lot, and, and they don't pay me to say that. that that's just me being honest. Now, uh, as always, be sure and thank Haroon for his time on the podcast. Uh, he's on Twitter at Haroon Meir, H-A-R-O-O-N-M-E-E-R. And of course, I like to hear your feedback as well, at Chris Sanders 88 So I hope you enjoyed this. Again, make sure to check out the Cuckoo's Egg course that I mentioned. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, which come out on a Tuesday, then the next course will be coming uh, next Thursday evening. And even if you can't attend the live session, there will be a recording. Make sure you check that out. And you can follow along on Twitter with the hashtag Cuckoo's Egg. I also want to give one more shout out for the charity selected by Haroon, United for Puerto Rico, helping the folks in Puerto Rico with the disaster relief related to the recent bad weather they've had out that way. Make sure you check that out. And if you're so interested, throw them a little support. It would certainly go a long way. That's going to do it for me. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a new one. Remember, it's always a beautiful day to catch bad guys. Y'all take care.